1: Well, we are back in the studio with my dear friend Gil Wesley for, again, I think as we said last time, 1981.
2: 81.
1: 81, we met Gil and Debbie, and Michael and Cindy had just started Dallas Theological Seminary together. We did not know each other prior. And there were a group of us that, you know, in God's kindness, kind of gravitated together. We became friends. Gil and Debbie, you didn't have boys in seminary yet no, no had that, no yeah, children yeah.
2: my oldest jonathan, jonathan was born after we graduated and i was doing a teaching administrative assistant position uh, how
1: old is jonathan today
2: 34 34
1: so he's younger than my oldest and yeah. older than my second daughter i want to open our time together with a verse in philippians chapter 3 verse 10 paul writes that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that, and that's probably a purpose clause. In other words, I want to know the power of resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of suffering in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That passage has confounded, encouraged, perplexed, wooed me most of my Christian life. As you know, Cindy and I have had a precious friendship with Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been on the broadcast a number of times, and she and I have had private conversations about what in the world does this mean, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So Gil Wesley has had more share of a fellowship of suffering than any human I know. Now, granted, Johnny would rank up there as well, being in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic for 54 years and counting. But another cheery Michael Easley message coming your way on In Context today. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you are hurting. You're discouraged. Your marriage, child has broken your heart, job loss, COVID consequences, fill in the blank. And we don't like to suffer. We don't want to suffer. We think this if then theology, if I do this, then God should do that. The prophets, why do the wicked prosper? This is an age-old question. And I turn to friends who have gone through these kinds of things. One more time, Paul saying that I might know him, not the solution, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Gil Wesley, take us back. You and Debbie meet in?
2: Birmingham, Alabama. We're both in high school, although my father was a principal and in the summers he would take summer jobs when school was out and he found this job as the manager, overseer of a swim and tennis club. And he would take that and that would give my brother and I opportunities to be in you know, the pool and tennis and all that all summer long. Sure. A second job for him Debbie and her family belonged to that club, so I knew who she was, but at that age, girls had cooties, and I didn't want anything to do with them.
1: Debbie never had cooties. Uh, I remember Debbie. Yeah, well,
2: I had cooties, and and, um, so I didn't try to get to know her, right, right. but in high school, we started circling around each other through a ministry that was called Campus Life. It was a young life, but different, different from young life. Our director shared her campus and my campus, and so we would do things together and got to know each other and became friends. And so this is 1976. Six. Okay. And our first date was my senior prom. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Okay. Then I went off to college. She stayed in Birmingham. But over those next few years, we just kept getting closer and closer. She ended up coming to Florida State. Got engaged, and then we were married my senior year, which was 1980 by the time we got yeah, married. Man. in the
1: And you had a little football yes, career in there. Yeah, so we, Played we, for some coach name. Coach uh, Bobby Bowden, who, FSU. Who? I don't
2: know who he is. Yes. <laughs> the funny thing is, we knew we were going to get married that summer, and we wanted to get married as soon as we could after the football season. But we had to plan our wedding for after a January 1st date because we were very good, <laughs> and we thought we'd go to the bowl game, which we did. We went to the Orange Bowl. And, you know, we played in the Orange Bowl, had the after bowl party. Then I flew from Miami to Tallahassee, got in a car with a couple of teammates, drove to Birmingham just in time to make the rehearsal. Oh, my word. And the rehearsal dinner. You
1: know, you haven't really changed. (laughs) (laughs)
2: You're kind of always that, you know. I will have millennia in heaven to make up for those kind of things that she graciously and gladly put up with.
1: And one of my favorite pictures of you is you and Burt Reynolds on the sidelines of the bowl game there. <laughs> he bought you all jerseys or something? Oh, was he it?
2: was just a big fan. No, you know, but he's just a big fan. He loved Florida State. He had actually played there but got hurt and then didn't finish and, of course, got into you were in the nose guard. I was the center. The I center. was center. Nose guards were my biggest enemies. So okay. I was offensive Sorry. center. Snap to the quarterback and the punter and the extra points.
1: Well, let's move on from Bowden and FSU and dreams of NFL. You and Debbie get married. You are married how long before Dallas? Not that long.
2: No. We married at the end of my senior year. We took a year off between the time we graduated and the time I enrolled in Dallas so that we could have a year together without yep. graduate yeah. school move and all that. Had that year. Then the next year, which was 81, started seminary where you and a couple of our friends had already gone for the summer language program. So we met then in 81. So, yeah.
1: So just to paint a picture of Gil, Gil introduced me to racquetball. I had never really played racquetball before. I played tennis and I wasn't an athlete, but I was athletic. I was kind of gangly and uncoordinated. And Gil's this very strong, skilled guy. And he takes me on the racquetball court and just cleans my clock routinely. But he teaches me to play racquetball. And one of my greatest achievements in life was when I started beating you. <laughs> and you would say – I've created a monster.
2: <laughs> and isn't that the <laughs> definition of a good teacher? Your student becomes better than you. Yeah, it happened too quickly. Was... And then
1: we met our friend Joe Erman, Erman. six foot six, 265-pound NFL football player who cleaned both of our clocks with one hand tied behind his back. Those were some fun years. A lot of sweat on the racquetball court. So – we go through the seminary together. We both graduate, matriculate. You end up working for Howard Hendricks and King Gangle yes. for a number of years. And as their TA and grader, you end up in Chico, California. You and Debbie go out to a church. We won't belabor that. You're involved in ministry. Debbie has just spoken at a women's retreat, if memory serves, and she's driving back. You've got two boys, but this time and their ages at that time... We're
2: six and two.
1: And she's driving back from the retreat and she has a really bad headache.
2: She was asked to be the speaker at a women's retreat, had no pre-concerns or, you know, indications. Of, so she had been gone. I was caretaking the two and a six-year-old. That's not my wheelhouse, so I was really excited about her getting home. It's early Sunday afternoon, and I have the kids out in the backyard, and the phone rings. And I wasn't going to answer it. I was just going to let the answer machine get it, but I went over to the window as the kids were playing outside to listen to the phone call. And it was the ladies that drove Debbie to the retreat. And they said to me, Debbie is really sick. And we're not going to bring her home. We're going to take her straight to the doctor's office because she needs help. And you might want to meet us there. And honestly, at the time, I didn't get panicked. I just thought, oh, she does get car sick. And if I'm perfectly honest, Michael, my first thought was, Dad, gum I've I've been, yeah. I, I've been yep. caring for the boys all weekend. Now I'm going to have to <laughs> Get give her to. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to do <laughs> much to my shame. A good and, typical male. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm much with you. to my shame and embarrassment. So when I got to the doctor's office, I had, of course, had the boys with me and they arrived. It was pretty clear that it wasn't car sickness. But that doctor, being, you know, sort of a general, he didn't quite understand. He thought, I'm going to give her a shot for flu. And if this shot doesn't really help her, then you need to take her to the emergency room. So we get the shot. We're driving home. And I had to stop once for her, you know, pardon me, but just dry, heaving gag. Just by that time, she had vomited everything up. And it was just this huge. So we get home. I put her in bed. She said, I need some water. So I give her a cup of water, Mike. And the cup goes straight to the side of her face. And she pours it down her shoulder. Mm. And I just went, honey, come on. We got to go. And I put her back in the car. got the boys. I called This lady that brought her home said, hey, I'm taking Debbie to the emergency room. Can you come help me with the boys? They met me there. We got in. And on the way to the emergency room, I'll never forget this. Debbie says, Gil, when we get to the emergency room, you need to let them know that I'm dying. Because I cannot sit in the emergency room waiting for them to get me in the room. You need to let them know I'm dying and I need relief right now. Mm -hmm. Don't let them let me sit there. I won't make it. And I said, all right, I'm with you. I'm going to do that. And the funny thing is we walk in with her and they took one look at her and they didn't even make a stop to fill out papers they said go back here doctor immediately comes in and she told me don't let them do tests I need immediate relief just get me relief my head feels like it's going to explode so the doctor comes in looks in her eyes there's a couple of things and he looks at me and says I think I know what's wrong with her but I need to take her back and get a CAT scan of her head and if we don't find out what we think and we're going to find out I'm going to have to do a spinal tap and I went look I know you know what you're doing. You're trying to cover all your bases. But she needs relief.
1: Turn the pain down.
2: And he looked at me and said, you're going to have to trust me. And, you know, I can get teary just thinking about it. So you hand over the most precious thing in your life and go. And, you know, it wasn't long. They didn't have to do the spinal tap. one wasn't long. And I'm standing in the hallway right outside the CAT scan. And he comes out and says, we know what it is. He holds up the x-ray. Any three-year-old would have pointed at him and not say, right. what's that? Because there was this ten size ball in the brain. So long story there, that was brain cancer, glioblastoma. So they did surgery the next day. The doctor comes out and says, I don't know what to tell you. It's the worst it can be. Level four glioblastoma. That mm-hmm. means that the mass, which we got the most mass, but of course, cancer is the crab. All the crab legs of the and spider. Well, they're just... From with glioblastoma, the mass of the cancer is one thing, but then it has the crab legs out. And we can take the mass out and then we can take some margins. But to get all the margins of all the crab legs, then you don't have a brain anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's so fast growing that each one of these crab legs are going to grow back real quickly. So the fact of the matter is that 95% of the people with this are dead within five months. And of the 10% that live, 95 of that left over 10% are dead within six months. And we know maybe one or two that have made it a year or so. And as you can imagine, at that point, my heart just blows up. You're you're numb. Just blows up. Yeah, yeah. And that is the beginning of that part of this story, so...
1: So, this is 1980, 93. Not 93, 1993. 13
2: years of marriage, of marriage, but then we had five or so of being together before that. You know, and it's, it's,
1: you got the two boys. Two six, boys, six, six and two. Two at the time. Yep, yep. So, now your life becomes doctors, hospitals, MRs, treatment options. Yes. And that goes on for
2: five months.
1: So, now we've got the diagnosis. You've got some time. You're looking at treatment options. Right. You're traveling around.
2: So, because of her age and health, I mean, she's perfectly healthy. 36, never smoked, done drink the whole thing. We're getting her into every experimental deal. You know, and at the same time, none of this has proven. There's to no be, sure. Yes, but, no guarantee. but these are all experienced things and let's yes. do them. And we're going, okay, great. So they get us into a program at University of California in San Francisco, one of the best neurosurgery and neuro brain cancer groups. What do you call it? Anyway. And she's part of that. So we're going down there. But The aggressiveness of tumor, Mike, they took it out. She did radiation. And in the middle of radiation, the cancer had grown back enough to where it was causing the pain in the head again. So they had to take it out again. Then this program in UCSF had an experimental program where they implanted radioactive iodine inside the tumor so they could nuke it from the inside out. And the theory was it would kill it so well that it would give you you know, two to three very pain-free, basically normal months before it grew back again. So you could go and say goodbye to everybody, whatever. So we had that surgery and Debbie's-
1: And that was still in California? Yes, that was Mm -hmm. in
2: California. You know, again, we're only talking five months here. So it's just accelerating. Several surgeries to remove this thing, this experimental test. After that test, Debbie wanted to go back to Alabama where she was born and family and say goodbye to everybody. And Talk so by
1: this me. time you and her have resolved I'm dying. Oh yeah. There's there, I, I mean the, for, these treatments might slow things down. Yes, they might give me a little yes, quality of right, life here and there, right. but I'm dying.
2: Now, I mean, and they're clear about that. I'll tell you a couple stories. One, after this doctor tells me what it is, and I go, What do you recommend I say to her? And he said, Well, tell her everything when she asked. You don't have to go in there and say, Hey, volunteer. by the way, yeah, mm-hmm. tell when she, you know, ask, but you need to tell her it's important because it's we're talking at the most five months, so Mike, they come get me and go, "Hey, she's awake and wants to see you, so I walk into her neuro i c u unit she's got the bandage on her head, she's just come out of major brain surgery. honey, I love you, how are you doing?" She goes, "Is it terminal That's the first wow. thing. it took my breath away i couldn't she was just that you know you know yeah. she yeah. just wanted to know truth, she wanted to know not like, Oh, that was painful. I'm, you know, how is everybody? It just, is it terminal? I couldn't breathe, Mike. I couldn't breathe. I said, honey, there are people outside the door, which they were who want to know how you're doing. I'm going to go out and tell them how I'm doing. I'll be right back. And I'll answer that question. I went outside. I leaned on the door. I could barely breathe. The people came up. What's going on? I said, she asked me, is it terminal? And everybody, Oh, and they're praying. You know, of course, and the doctor's words. So I go back in and we have that conversation. Yes, it's terminal. She settled right there in her heart, you know? Okay. I wish I had the note that she wrote because a few days later, just passing—this was before emails and cell phones and everything—some friends passed a mammograph note around, which I have a copy of, to just friends, and it went from friend to friend to friend. Mike, a thousand people show up at the hospital; they uh, surround the I hospital. a
1: picture of this? They yeah.
2: surround <laughs> the hospital hand to hand. The news gets a hold of this and say, "What's going on? We miss something. How can you tell us?" They send the reporter; they do a story about it. These friends all came around to say we're praying, you know, we're praying for you. We're praying for healing. Now, at
1: this point, you and I have a theological framework we have been indoctrinated with. At this point, is there a percentage of Gil that's going, God could intervene and save my wife and the mother of my children, or are you resolved, I'm a loser?
2: I guess I couldn't go all one way or the other. It was all confusing, you know, because we had- You're shocked. We're shocked. And plus, and you heard all these prayers, you know, if people pray and trust God, then well, you had a thousand people all in agreement that this was not God's will and we could heal and this lady loves God and- you know, that nobody in that thousand would say, yeah, but I think there's hidden sin in her. She just was that—I mean, you tell. It might it, sound self-saving she, Well, as, as I've
1: often said, Debbie was otherworldly. She did not belong to this world.
2: So there was that before God in your presence. There was a sense in me that God said there was just this whisper of God saying, Gil, this is going to be. So I knew it, but you had that other thing. And so there was this confusion a little bit, but it never gotten to that. Well, if I just try harder, if I just can find that sin or whatever.
1: Okay, okay, stop. Yeah. Go up to 30,000 feet elevation. Yeah, yeah. Look down on your biblical theology and your life experience. What do you say to a person that has just learned my husband, my daughter, my son, my infant, whatever, has got this really unfortunate prognosis?
2: I'm so sorry. My heart breaks. I could almost start crying right now. That's what I would say. You know, Job's friends, when they came and sat with him for seven days, were very They were great. They great. were great. It's when they opened their mouth trying sorry, to— Sorry,
1: comforter. Sorry, you all.
2: <laughs> it's when they tried to make sense <laughs> of, of this mystery. We don't know, Mike. So I would just say, I am so sorry. Can I hug you? Let me sit with you. Let me just— be,
1: Was there anything—and this was quick— Was there anything during that time that people did or said that helped?
2: Oh, yeah. The ones that would just be, you know, we're so present present and uh, we're with you. They take the boy. I mean, just all the practical things. Showing up at the hospital. Mike, when that was happening, there had to be four different nurses that came into the room and said, hey, we understand these people here praying for you. My patient sent me down here to ask you if you would ask them to pray for you wow. and you know what she would say she would look them in the eye gosh and she'd say you go back and tell your patient they came to pray for them that's why they're here mm. I mean that happened four times so it just it got in the paper you know like they thought mm-hmm. that there was some celebrity or that this was a protest of you know against something <laughs> you know and it just got out so yeah, all those things, that they did that, and that wasn't from a church, or it was just a note of friends from friend to friend to friend to friend that got out, and Body. It, it transcended any one church or denomination. So
1: she's diagnosed. She'd go through two big surgeries. she go through some trial discussions. Debbie says, I want to go home and see family in Birmingham. You come to Birmingham.
2: And everything fell off the cliff. We knew with what she had, the doctors from UCSF sent all her files and all her pictures and everything to UAB, Birmingham. It's a big teaching university hospital. So they pre-set up everything because anything could happen. We weren't there a day, and this blistery thing showed up on her scar on her head, and it hurt. And so we went to see that doctor they set us up with, and he went, I don't like the way this looks. Did a little biopsy. It was a different kind of cancer, and it would just blow them away. So she became a study. Of course. You know, like, how can this happen to a 36-year-old? It's a different kind of cancer. Well, what had happened is when they took those radioactive iodines out of her head, in their studies, they now know they're dragging some of the cancer cells from the Whoa. brain, which would stay into the subcutaneous level. It's mm. It suddenly just drops off, and that, over. that mucus level, you know, that's our skin and everything, and it just spread through our whole body. That's where you throw up your hand and say, you know, like, really? Like, what? what?" we
1: thought was helping, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: and nobody's mad. Right. But if you look to God, you say, really? So brain cancer is not enough. Now it has to go through her whole body. One of her, you know, the way she would respond, she goes, well, at least I'm thankful it's brain cancer because then you don't have pain. Pain. Well, the stuff went to her lungs, her, her stomach. I shouldn't even pretend to laugh there and you go well, sometimes you have to keep, you do you, you do to, or you yeah. go crazy and you, you go lord really i mean come on she's saying bless the lord on my soul but now now it's this and she was locked in you know this hospital thing and they did that and they thought maybe it was a radioactive you know cancer caused by the radiation because they did so much because of how many times but they said but that usually does not show up for years and then they found out they had drug it out so they did this surgery to debreed it on the head. And at that point, Debbie told me, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anymore. And I said, honey, I'm with you. You, you go yep. when you yep. need to go, but we're going to get your parents in here and you're going to tell them because we're not going to fight. Now, where are the,
1: are the boys in California? No,
2: the boys are there. Okay. You know, both of our families lived in Birmingham. But, Michael, and I've got to say this with all due respect, and I love, I did not want to get stuck in Birmingham. I had a support system in Chico that didn't have to put up with the, shall we say, the idiosyncrasies of families. Yeah,
1: different, yeah, yeah.
2: And I would be dealing with my wife's death in someone else's place. I had no control. I prayed, God, don't let that happen. And here we are. And you can't go back. And so there's another thing. You throw your hands and go, all right, Lord, you know, and I'll get to a story that summarizes all this. But, you know, so you throw your hands up, and then it just started telling off. And they finally came and said, look, if you want her to die at home, you need to get her home Mm -hmm. because it could be any minute now. And she didn't want to die in the hospital, so we took her. Ended up, her mother insisted at being in her home, which was again not convenient. But what are you going to do? What it is, and that was a difficult thing. But then she was home for you know another six days, and then just died.
1: Now, in that time period when she's obviously trailing fast, you had some pretty otherworldly experiences.
2: Yes, yes. First. Because she was in these isolation units at the hospital, her children hadn't seen her for, I don't know, two and a half, three weeks. So our oldest, Jonathan, is six at the time, just about to turn seven. So we get Debbie home, and we get her settled in the room, and it's just Debbie and me. And she says, okay, Gil, I want to see people, everybody. I want them to come. I want everybody that wants to be here to be here. I want to say goodbye. I want to tell them I love them. But here's the deal. You cannot leave me. Because I'm in such pain, if anybody touches me, the pain becomes so great, I'm going to have to take a shot of medicine, and it'll numb me out, and I want to be as wake as possible for as long as possible. So you need to be here, when they come in, you got to make sure they don't touch me. Timing, yep. You can't touch me. And as a matter of fact, you can't let them bump the bed. Because the I vibrations yeah, come I, up. Yeah, no, I understand you, that part. You, 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 yes, you're I with do. your pains. You know it. So I need you to be here. I want to see her, bow. I need you to be here. And you can't let them touch me, and you can't let them hit the bed. I said, okay, yeah, I got it. I'm with you. First person in the room is our seven-year-old son, Jonathan. He walks in. Jumps on the bed. Well, no. He walks in, and his face is just this just it's this Cause confusion. Had, and of cause course. Because he hadn't seen her in a while. And he's going, can Mom walk? And I said, no, she can't walk. And he said, well, how are we going to get back to Chico, California? And Mike, everything in me wanted to lie. So, oh, it'll be fine. She'll be fine. But I just knew I couldn't. And I said, son, your mother's not going to walk. We're not going to get back to Chico. And she's going to be with Jesus in a few days. And she just wants you know, to be with you. And he tears up and he's just standing there. And as he does it, she looks over, you know, she's there present. And she goes, Jonathan, come up here and get in bed with me. And the rail on his side of the bed is up. And so he starts running around. I go, stop, 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 you know. And he stops and looks at me. <laughs> and I look at her and I went, wait. And she goes, I know. I know. Let him up. Go. Oh, I'm going to start crying right now. I said, okay, it's okay. He runs and jumps on the of bed course. first off and buries his head in her chest. Now, he can't see her, but she just winces. Dying. dying. I mean, it's just almost okay. like she's passing out winces and then sort of regains it. And just holds him and strokes him. And she goes, Jonathan, I'm going to be with Jesus soon. And I want you to know that I'm going to you know, love you. And it won't change anything the way I love you. I want you to know that this body is not me. In a few days, I'm going to die. And I'm going to leave this body. It's just the clothes. This mm-hmm. body or just mm-hmm. the clothes God gave me so I could live here and love you. So when I'm gone, you can touch this body. It's not me. I'm going to go up and be in heaven. I'm going to be wait for you there and pray for you there. And I love you so much. And I'm so glad I was your mom. And, of course, I'm just, I'm I'm a wreck. He, although gets off the bed and he goes out, and I'm arguing most of his health today is because he got that blessing from his mother, one that I wished I'd have gotten from my Mm -hmm. parents and never had. I was, you know, I was late 50s or 60s when my dad died. and Not that he didn't feel, but he couldn't speak Couldn't
1: articulate it, yeah.
2: And he, at six, got this blessing Mm. that, hey, you're loved. You're okay. You got what it takes to make this life, and I'm always going to be with you. That's why we pay psychologists thousands of dollars to let us know that's the truth. And and to
1: think that she had the wherewithal in the midst of her own pain and agony. And when you are in that much, when you're suffering and you're so, you know, I call it the constant distraction. When pain overwhelms you, it's so hard to get out of yourself and think about that. But she had the presence and God's kindness to love on him.
2: God's mercy and her will. I yep. mean, she almost yep. passed out when he jumped on the bed mm. and put her... Her love is that powerful.
1: Now, this is your six-year-old. Six-year-old. Now, the two-year-old... Two,
2: two-year-old had no language. It just couldn't... He couldn't comprehend. Couldn't... I mean, that's, and that's the other yeah. thing. It's a whole other set of...
1: Mommy's dying, but we don't know how to explain
2: exactly. it. Exactly. So, later when we went back to chico and we drove by the hospital he said hey dad look there's where mommy lives Mm. and you know we had to have no nope she was there for a long time she's now with jesus in heaven but yes that's where she was and you went to see her you know so but it had no concept
1: you know this is cruel for me to ask but now we progress now you've buried a wife well You you have two sons you are a single parent you've got your own grief You're trying to shepherd, corral, encourage them. You've also got people that are clamoring all over you from the good side of the bell curve who want to help to the wrong side of the bell curve who just want to sort of like ticks on the dog. And you're trying to navigate this.
2: Yeah. First, I do want to say hardest thing I've ever done, including college football and everything, is being the what I call Mr. Mom of a home or a single parent of the primary caregiver in a home. And so to my wife, Debbie, and all the mothers out there, I bow down in prostration going, I am not worthy. I don't know how she and so many other mothers made it look so easy and just on the backstroke. And, you know, I barely survived. I mean, it was all I could do to get them dressed and bathed and fed, you know, to keep a house in order and to do, you know. Learning, So I just want to go on record of saying, you know, my hat's off to all women. I vividly
1: mothers. remember you telling me, Michael, I'm so embarrassed. I bought a 1,000 styrofoam plates at Costco. Yes. <laughs> my children eat frozen food off of styrofoam
2: plates. One of my uh, youngest son's favorite person in the world was the Domino's pizza delivery guy. He would literally run out the door and grab the guy and hug his legs. <laughs> it's like, we're going to eat. Food. <laughs> we're going to eat. <laughs> so...
1: Now, oh my gosh. I, I do want to go back uh, a little yeah, bit yeah, though. Because no, yeah. there was one story I've heard you tell many times about Debbie as she's dying. Yeah. And some things she shared with you.
2: I will tell two stories you can figure. So I was talking to her when, you know, she was in the hospital and I said, Honey, what was the pain like? And she said, I can't describe it. I said, Was it, you know, one to ten? She said, I can't. There's no number I can put on it. It literally felt like my head was going to blow off, and I wished it would have. So I can't, but she said, I do want to tell you one thing. So what was happening is the tumor was pressing on the ventricle. That's the part of the brain that circulates the fluid to keep the brain from overheating. And the ventricle is where that water circulates, and it's a water cooling system for the brain. Well, the tumor was pushing on the right side of that, so it was causing all that water to back up, so all the pressure could go nowhere. So it's just pressure blowing your head off, and it was swelling then, the water couldn't go where so it's swelling down the brainstem, which is your automatic breathing and heart and everything. So, and it causes you to gag because it's like you got a big stick down your throat because it's swelling in the back of your throat. So she said, at the worst, I was laying there and I was begging God for help because I wanted to get home and I wanted to say goodbye to you and the boys, but I knew I was dying. So I was just asking for help and mercy. And she said, Gil, I'm gonna tell you what happened. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I thought or I had a dream. I'm going to tell you what happened. The presence of Jesus came to me in that car. And she said, now, I can describe it. It was a male figure. But if you look clearly at the face, it wasn't like it looked like Charlton Heston or something. It just would go to every man's face, every race, every color, every face. It'd be this changing. But you knew it was Jesus, and it was a human likeness. And he grabbed me by my hand ears and pulled his face to my face so our nose were touching and all I could see was his eyes and he said to me my precious my precious my precious my precious and she said Gil when that happened I could not fear and she said let me make myself perfectly clear I'm not saying I knew I shouldn't be afraid or didn't have to be afraid the capacity for fear left was gone wow in that Eskimo kiss, Jesus was kissing us. God kissed us into existence. He put his mouth on ours and breathed the breath of life. When we expire, we give that kiss back. It's a we kiss God. Jesus came to kiss her right there and she said, I couldn't be afraid. I couldn't be in fear. You know, I'm just sitting there like, what you, well, well, yep. you know, in our training, those things weren't really talked about or whatever. But I'm like, and she said, "I'm not telling you. I, th- you know, it was like a dream. I'm telling you this one happened." The fascinating thing, Mike, is that next year, you know, I work with the National Prayer Breakfast, and Mother Teresa was a speaker. And her job was to go out every day, find the person closest to death, bring them back to the house of mercy or whatever, and that she would just be with that person. They'd cut their toenails and fingernails, wash them, bathe them, and just would be with them because she said, "I wanted them to experience." the love of God once before they died. And this patient she had picked up was cancer ridden. And she said, it was just screaming in pain and begging for mercy. And mother Teresa's comfort to the lady was my dear, my dear, do not despair. This pain is the kiss of Jesus. My, I almost jumped up and ran up front. And despite the security around the president going, that's what my wife just told me. Pain is the kiss of Jesus. Can we dare to believe that? Can we
1: not in this culture? Not in America. We got a treatment. We got a protocol. We got a trial. We got a medication. We got the money to go to Mexico and try
2: something else. Diversions. Yes. And see, is that what this message God's got on me as we keep going is pain and suffering are not punishments or rejections. They're invitations into the deep intimacy. Now, there's nothing mystical or like, oh, pain's just wonderful. No, pain can cause bitterness as well as it can make you better. It's not in and of itself Holy and beautiful, but it is this opportunity. It's horrible. It's just, it's horrible. And we don't have to call it We're good. fallen
1: people in a fallen context in a broken world, and suffering exists because of our sin.
2: Some of it, but some of it doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, us. but I mean,
1: the general consequence well, it, that it, we're fallen creatures in a fallen context, how we go through it. Yes. So you indicated there was a second lesson okay. you learned from Okay, all right, this.
2: and here's the other lesson going back Big to lesson. Debbie. Back yeah. to Debbie. So, Mike, I have been with people through... They have me come over, and when people die, they give that kiss back to Jesus. It's a sacred moment. It's that last, it's that you gave me that kiss, I'm giving that kiss back, that breath, that life, that Eunice. And I wanted to be with Debbie when that happened. But I had been up with her all night for several nights, and the hospice nurse was there. And she said, look, it could be any minute. It could be, in you know, Amazing. she said, it won't be long and i remember asking her i said well, long's a relative term you you talking about days you talking about hours you you know right you know two days is right. a long time right now but and she said no no i'm talking about it could be minutes it could be you know hour but it will be today and it'll be soon so you look exhausted and if you need
1: to you get, get a break yeah,
2: and you want to be here go and so I had two friends visiting me there that were from California, just came out. So I said, I need to get out of the house for a minute. Would you guys take me on a ride? I just need to get some fresh air and whatever. And they said, sure. So I go to the restroom before I go for this ride. And I remember I'm washing my hands, looking at myself in the mirror. And I say, God, it feels like everything I've asked you about this sickness since Debbie got her diagnosis, you have answered with a no. Everything I've asked, it seems like the answer is no. I'm asking one last thing, and I beg you to let the answer be yes. Mm. Don't let her die while I'm out. That sounds like selfless, right? I mean, it sounds whatever. Mike, as clear as you're talking to me right now, in that place in my head that I hear this voice that I know is the voice of God now, he goes, I can't make that promise. And as a matter of fact, Gil, that's not going to happen. Now, I want to be clear it was clear to me that he's saying, so don't leave and stay. He was saying, you got to go, and she's going to die while you're gone. Now It wasn't like, oh, oh, Gil, don't go. because don't she, go. right, right. She's it going, no, any minute. you got to go, and she's going to die. And I mean, I saw my face. It was just like, I didn't scream out because everybody's there, but in my heart I'm screaming, well, is there anything I can ask you and I know you're going to say yes to? Without a beat, he goes, yes, ask for me, and I'll give you all you can stand. And when I'm what you have, you'll realize that's what you've always wanted. And these things are just reflections of that.
1: I was serving in a church in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and I invited you to come and teach one Sunday. And we played a segment of an interview that Dennis Rainey and Bob Lapine had captured of you and Debbie. And we played that as the opener. And I remember you stood up and you said, I haven't heard a voice in a long time. Yeah. And then I remember you saying about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and you told the story of that well-known passage, and you said, God did not exempt them from the fire. He was in there with them. And they come out, and you said, "Well, they didn't even smell like like smoke.
2: smoke. When I heard that she was going to die, my heart broke in a million pieces. So in my egoic self, not, you know, oh, God will be there, but I can't leave this important thing to him, you know, because this isn't the kind of thing I have to take a, I can't trust him with this. I came up with this strategy. If it fails this bad to hear, she's going to die. If I go back in and we get as close as we've been up to this point, if I'm just all there and, then when she dies, those broken pieces of my heart will be crushed to sand, and I'll die. And I can't. i got two young boys. I've got to stay alive. i got to keep going. I can't let this thing. So I'm going to be present to do everything, but I'm going to have this emotional barrier because I've got to protect my heart. I've got to. I can't. Yeah. Mike, you're, she was not of this world thing. First day we get home, we're getting her settled in the bed, and we're talking. She goes, Gil, I'm a little confused. Why do I feel like you're distancing yourself from me? (laughs) That's the first day, and I want to scream. I want to scream. And plus, (laughs) believe me, I was being Mr. There. I'm doing everything. But she picked up this distance, and I didn't have the courage to tell her what I just told you. So immediately popped into my mind. I said, well, honey, if you feel that and what you're feeling, it has to be that your cancer is like a fire. And every time I try to get close, it burns me, and you're feeling me reflexively pull back for the fire. (laughs) That's sort of the most honest I could be. As soon as I said that, that voice that I just referenced goes into my head, that's right, Gil, she is a fire, but I'm still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All your life, you've bent the knee to the God of self-protection. Every time something comes up, that 90-foot so what foot idol, where,
1: is, where is the, and I hate the word balance, so yeah. where is the lesson for the Christian? There's a self-protection in all of us from pain. I mean, when the child burns his finger on the stove, he doesn't touch the stove again because it burns. And part of that could be common sense, part of it's self-protection, but what you're saying is
2: that there is a truth that has to be overcome many times if we're going to get into the realm of divine love. Of course, we don't go running and touching stove, but... How many times we hear the story, the father and mother runs into a burning building and you know, almost scorches themselves, knowing how painful it is, because love makes them go in there to save. So what we're talking about, if we want to go into the deepest parts of God, it's not illogical. It's just translogical. It's not unknowable. It's just infinitely knowable. If we will allow it, God will point out to us where we are bending the knee to our own idols our own because we don't trust the one God. And in this case for certain, he's saying every time you get into a tough situation, you bow the knee to self-protection. You come up with a plan. You come up with some way to make it work and whatever. I am begging you this time, don't. And that idol is coming by. And when you don't bow your knee to it, you are gonna go into this furnace called your wife's sickness. But I'm gonna go in with you just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego.
1: You are now a single parent. You have a six- and a two-year-old boy. You're doing your best to raise them. You've got some good friends yes. in Chico that are around you that yes. are helping you yes. here and there. Yes, But you're still alone. Just,
2: okay, three stories. One day, I have to wake up. I'm in bed, but I can't get out of bed. And I'm praying, and I'm trying to gin up the energy. I'm just praying. I have to get up because i got a two- and a six-year-old that have to be cared for. I have to. But I can't. And I'm just like, oh Lord, this is embarrassing. You know, I'm supposed to be a leader and you know, pastor, and I can't even get out of bed. I I feel like I'm out of control. Mike, you know, take him, leave it, whatever. Let me say that I'm telling you my story. I went to the backside of the desert, and I'm just giving a report. Take it, leave it, let the spirit. If you know, throw it at whatever. I'm just reporting what God happened to me on the backside of this desert. Hopefully it gives people hope and courage that they can go back or if they're called back there and when they're called back there, they'll know that. But God says to me, Oh, I'm so excited to hear that you're out of control because only one of us can be. And I've been waiting to hear that from you a long time. First, this is why I say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because they break through to true wisdom. You were never in control, I always was, but I'm so secure I don't have to have you notice that all the time. You know, the fact of the matter is you never got yourself out of bed. Every day you live and breathe on oh, my account and my grace, my love. You just felt like you did. But this trial is breaking through that reality that you're not in control. You never been in control. That's why consider it a joy when you come to trials. You come to the true wisdom. I'm God, you're not. It makes me happy that you've learned that you're not in control. I'm not going, where's your faith? Get up and suck it up, let's go. No, this is the best day so far and way. You just learned something. And I'm laying there like, what? And I don't know how, I don't know the mystery, but I had an energy to get up and I get out of bed. So another day, I'm laying in there. By the way, if you think, well, that experience and then that's the end of that and you're moving on and upward and all of that. No, that's not my experience. That was that moment of grace. I don't know how much longer. Here's another more. I couldn't get out of bed. I was laying there just thinking, and I went, "Well, nobody has to convince me there's a hell because I'm living it." Maybe the only difference is duration, or, but this is as hellish as I can get, and it's hell. And then I felt guilty because God had been so present. And I oh, I can't say, but instead of any yes, shame on you, kind of God just went, "No, that's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. I don't mind you calling this hell. That's good. But let me ask you a question. Didn't." You preach one time that if one day you woke up in bed and you found it in Sheol or the death place, that that couldn't separate you from my love. And doesn't your tradition say that after Jesus died and was buried, he descended into hell? So now Jesus told me, He says, So, Gil, I've been to hell. I know the way out. So you just hold my hand and we'll walk out of this thing together. What can separate us from the love of God? Can demons, can life hell, can death. life, the darkness, whatever? Well, Mike, I could have quoted that verse, but now we're talking about I'm You're there. Living it. You're living it. And hear me clearly, everybody. Jesus is writing my Bible. It was one thing for me to say Shadrach, Mesh, and went through the fire, and none of us have a hard time believing that happened, but will he take me in my fire? Will he take me in hell? And he's doing, and he's, yes. And this is the knowing that transcends knowledge. And then, you know, one other story in the middle of all this. I was miserable. I was lonely. The kids were sick. I finally got in a bed. I went outside. I'm looking up the stars, and I have my hand up in the sky, and I'm going, you have screwed me. You have screwed me. And then again, I felt guilty. Quickly, guy goes, no, that's a fair statement, too. Another way to say what you just said is I'm making love to you. I go, well, then why does it hurt so much? And he said, because when young lovers first make love, it's often painful for the bride, and in this relationship, you're the bride. So, Gil, I have no need to you be in pain. And if this is too painful to tell me, I'll quit. But if you let me have my way with you, this pain will turn into an ecstasy and a deepness and an intimacy that's beyond your imagination. I'm just reporting stories, Mike.
1: So we have to go on. Yes. So you go through this tumultuous, torturous time, losing Deb, otherworldly person. I've often shared the story with people that know you and Cindy and me and others that Debbie Wesley looked at you. She was the most beautiful cheerleader on the sideline, looking at her husband, who was the greatest football player on the field. Whether you were pontificating about theology at seminary or whatever, she's gone. You're alone. You go through a very difficult time. You visited us in Virginia. I remember on my back deck on more than one occasion with your head in your hands Mike, I need a wife. I can't be single fast forward you find another lady
2: beautiful lori you remarry
1: lori has children from prior marriage and you guys are married for a few years and you sort through a blended families Mm -hmm. and a lot of trouble there i mean we cover that quickly but those were some difficult years i remember you and i talking many occasions about what did i do How do I navigate this? This is a mess.
2: And I was arrogant enough to believe, oh, yeah, I know that blended family's tough, but I'm just relational, loving. I I can make this. Oh, man. That was. It was hard. Hard. Very hard. hard. In in the middle of that, we found out that my youngest son has autism, so we have to adjust to hold that whole thing. It just, it was. Yeah, so
1: And her children are older, so you've got to blend a family issue with birth order being disrupted. It totally changed. It was uh, very
2: difficult for my oldest son, who mm-hmm. was the dominant oldest, but he became then the third in the birth order. That was difficult. Loyalty issues. I mean, we had to work through it. By loving this new parent doesn't mean you don't love your one that you lost. They were, you know, getting through that. She's the, not
1: my mother. Right,
2: that kind of yep. thing. And, you know, just... On and on. And
1: assuredly for Lori's children, the same. Oh, who absolutely. is this guy? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, you have conversations like, look, guys, you know, I can never replace your father, but every home needs a dad. And in this home, I'm the dad. You pick what you want to call me. We'll work this thing out. But, you know, it's who thinks about this? I mean, I know we didn't have classes on that. Here's what you do if that. You just go and you cry and you struggle and you... But you persisted. You say you're sorry, yes. You persisted
1: and and you worked through it and you got to a place where things were, I wouldn't just say functional, but they were working.
2: Oh, yeah. And you you were seeing
1: progress. Oh,
2: yes. Closeness of families. And uh, and,
1: Lori is a teacher. Yep. And one day, she's a little confused.
2: Yes. And that season of the confusion went on for a while. And I do remember it was odd. She was... Everywhere we went, we'd run into students and parents of people that she had taught. They would go, you know, you saved my son. You saved my daughter. They hated school. They didn't know how to read. You made a – everywhere we went. Well, she started coming home and saying, parents don't want their kids in my class. And I went, honey, please, you know. The principal's coming down and doing, you know, checking on me all the time. Wow. And I would say, great. Then she'll say, what a great teacher you are. And whatever I said, you'll probably get, you know, a raise, a raise or something. Right, right. you know? I said, well, honey, maybe it's like. Our youngest son with autism, he can't do the creative stuff you do, so maybe they need to move him to a more read this, do that kind of class. It's not you, honey. Everywhere we go. And she just would never say, Gil, I just can't think anymore.
1: Well, she probably didn't know what she didn't know. Right. Okay. Right.
2: Right. But what it was was the beginnings of young onset Alzheimer's. So she started with Alzheimer's probably in her mid-40s.
1: You told me a story about going to a probably not the first neurologist, and you said, Michael, <laughs> he gave her a sheet of paper, and he, I still remember this. He said, draw a circle, and then draw two o'clock on the circle. Yeah. And you said to me, it looked like the state of Florida, and the lines weren't even in the field. So, so at that point, he says.
2: Well, she freaks out. Because I mean, of course. So imagine you have a circle on the page, and you start going. All right, put the numbers of the clock on there, and you go one, two, three, four, five. Before you get to three, and you go, no, that's not right. One, two, three, four, five. And finally, after a long time, okay, I know this is six. One, two, three, four, five. No. And then she just quits and crying, and she's freaking out. I teach her. I teach this. I know the. And he goes, ma'am. This is not an intelligence test. This is a very precise neurological examination. So this is telling us specifically a part of your brain that's not functioning. Now, this is not an intelligence. We know you're intelligent, but you got to calm down because if you get freaked out, it'll make it worse. So he said, let me put the numbers on there. Now, put the hands on the clock that show it's, you know, 240. She just started crying. She didn't even try. I'm just staring at her. I'm going like
1: You're dumbfounded. Oh, yeah. Now, for people that haven't been around it, Alzheimer's is horrible in one thing, but early onset is. Oh,
2: it's super rare. I mean, it's a person in her 40s. And, and
1: it's it, horrendous. Oh,
2: it's horrendous. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it's just
1: so, talk- all right, let's go back to Gil for a moment. Right. So you're hearing this. You're watching Lori. This is wife number two. You're watching her struggle, confused, angry, fearful. What's going on? In your head.
2: Man, Mike, that's such a great question.
1: You trying to fix? No. You trying to find the next treatment? You trying to find the next doctor?
2: Those things, yes. But again, in the two diagnoses we had, the one and this one, there is no stopping it. There is no, hey, if we do this. So you want to do the best. And again, because she's so young and healthy, they want her in all the programs we enrolled in one early, and then she just finally said, I don't want to spend my last cognitive days as a lab animal. So I said, honey, well, and let Well, and
1: let's inject here because you and I have had this conversation over the years. The medical community and all their wonderful, incredible, tremendous, over-the-top years they spend training and studying and trying to help us, there's also a aspect of that that you are the lab rat. You know, we are going to try trials and clinicals and placebos, and that may or may not help Lori, but it might help some. And that's a whole thing. The patient, at one hand, you go, why should I, as the patient, have to even engage in this level of this right. conversation? Right. This is my wife. This is the mother of our children. Right. This, you know, in your situation, your second wife. So all that's swirling around. Yeah. And, and it's not your first rodeo because right. you've been through it with right. Debbie.
2: Right. And. You know, you're four. you know, God bless these guys that, yes. are, that are trying to Amazing cure people. these things. Amazing and, people. You know, and she did it for a while, and it was a three-hour drive each way, and you had to spend, and she just said, I just don't want to spend my last cognitive days doing this. Well, and, and they understood. And you. let me
1: inject, yeah. too, and when folks know my story somewhat with chronic pain and five back surgeries, is I often tell people, you must be your own advocate. Yes. You can get good counsel. You certainly, I mean, I've gone out of state for two surgeries because I believe, you know, there's certain physicians who can Absolutely. serve me better than maybe here. That said, I also know there's no miracle, and yet at some point you have to make the decision. I'm no advocate. I live with the consequence of the treatment that I try, but there's no nobility in going to the gamma knife, isometric implants times 10, go to Mexico and try some theory that's unproven, et cetera. I had a friend that went to, I won't say where, went out of country and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on treatment, and he still died. I don't judge him for that, but it's to the point where we're all terminal, but you and Lori had to come up with a metric of some kind. We will do this. We We won't do that. Right.
2: And I don't have the answer. Listen to your heart. Listen well, no, to your no, I,
1: you don't have the answer, but you have an observation, just like I do, to say there's common sense here. When, when Cindy and I went through infertility, hardly the same as life and death. We went through several years of her OB, and then we went to a specialist, and we sat down with him, and it was a whole different discussion. And he had not anything fancy. He had a piece of notebook paper, and he wrote down a bunch of things he wanted to check for and then I looked at him and I said, Is a year of trying this, is that a good plan? And stupid me, he says, Well, that's twelve tries. And I went, Oh, I thought about it that way. <laughs> that's twelve tries to get pregnant. Okay. And he goes, actually, that's a really good plan. And so on the things he wrote on that notebook paper, we went after the most obvious ones right away. And after twelve months, now it had been almost four or five years. Of not being able to conceive again then we went to the adoption channel and i just tell that anecdotally yeah. to say look people will tell you all kinds of things there's always another treatment and i would say it's equally as wrong to give up right away sure i mean you got to give some time to let this sit with you so early on, said alzheimer's 40
2: i would say she was 46
1: 46 means. now the unsavory part of this this is much different than having Alzheimer's in your seventies oh, or eighties. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's ugly
2: because your body is so. She was incredibly healthy. I had multiple doctors go, "Man, this is some of the best blood work I've ever seen." And, it's like a consolation yeah, prize. Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, wow, oh, oh, thanks. She was healthy and you know, active. <laughs> I'm starting and, to laugh, but well, I no.
1: I love the health community, but I can hear them saying, "This is great."
2: It's like, you uh, know, and, 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 and so, so now you're looking at, wait are we talking about she's going to live another 40 years without the ability to put her shoes on or speak or whatever, you know, and it's a system that your body just starts falling All right,
1: apart. Let's, like, let's yeah. move from medical yeah. Yeah. to yeah. parenting, family, and spiritual. Yeah. So now you've got this horrible diagnosis and you got to go home and tell her three children and your two sons.
2: Just to show, you know, for example, just the difficulty. i Call my oldest son, who at the time had moved and was living in Seattle.
1: And he's how old at this time? Oh, son? gosh. 18?
2: No, he's probably, you know, in his early 20s, 20s or okay. whatever. And he said, Dad, I'll, you know, anything you want me to do or do there. But if it's okay, if possible, I need to set this one out. I just don't think I can do this again, you know. But if you need me, I'm there or whatever. You know, clearly going to be there. But what do you say? And it's just like, I get it, son. I get it. I don't know how I'm going to do that. My youngest son lists very heroically with autism, but autism is about order and routine. And from the time he was two and his mother died, you know, he's been through a series of non-routine
1: disorder. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. One thing after another, and so he's there. And then, of course, her children, and it's just painful.
1: From the time she's just months of confusion to a clear diagnosis, and then when she starts losing some of her awareness and cognitive ability, what's happening to— not physically. What's happening to you and your family spiritually?
2: I really can't speak for my family. I need them to speak. But, you know, we stayed together. But what you observed. Yeah, but I'm going to tell you my yeah. story, my story. Okay. I had gone through this process, and I embraced it, and I went head on to it through Debbie's death. It then started me on a journey of my own spiritual life of this surrender of knowing that I'm not God and I don't know everything and I have to. So this then took me to a new level of that.
1: And just for our help, the time between Debbie's death and Lori's diagnosis
2: was there was about three and a half years before Lori and I met and got married. And then it was about 10 years, about 14 years in there. So
1: Debbie's passed away about 14 years prior to her being when Lori's getting diagnosed. Okay. 14. All right. So you've, in some respects, you had the undergrad degree right. in suffering and watching a spouse.
2: And being present for that and present how and, to trust God. That
1: And the balance of trying to seek medical help and right. trusting God and why God and where right. God and what do I do and how. Right. You and I have talked a lot about we don't ask God why, but we ask God how do we live? How do we remain faithful? How do we encourage people around us?
2: Exactly. So this was about... I had a friend, like almost a spiritual director kind of friend, but he said, hey, Gil, never met anybody like you. It just, all of this is... No, we haven't. Well, you know, so, <laughs> but we're watching and, you know, you're doing what we all fear and you're being there. exactly. You know, so can you this time go through this and let us participate? But what we're asking is don't get... And I want to be careful I'll say it. Don't go into your head and be a theological. Don't give us, well, these ideas. Show us how to go through something like this. Experience it with Jesus as a fully authentic human being. It was like God said, that's it. I don't want you to think your way through this. I don't want you to come up with theologies. I don't want you to come. I want you to experience this as an authentic human. And what I led me to is as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't get up and go, oh, well, you know, this is because, you know, he went, God, if you want to know how I feel about what you're saying here, I'm distressed to the point of death. And if that doesn't move you, take a look at my blood vessels. They're bursting. I'm stressed out so much. It's okay to be authentic human with how you feel when you're going through Mm -hmm. this. Then he goes, and Father, I know you can do all things. In other words, you didn't make two fingerprints the same way. You didn't make two snowflakes the same way. There's a million ways we could go about making this thing work. I know you can do all things. So that's what I think. And let me tell you what I want. I want you to take this away from me. Don't make me do this. So it's okay to say what we think. It's okay what we feel. It's okay to say what we want. But Mm -hmm. the end of that, as the authentic human position of Jesus, the son of Adam, was to say, but I know you're good. And not good as I wish good looked. And I know I'm beloved. Therefore, not my will, but your will. I will trust you. Mm. I will trust you.
1: Now, when are we able to integrate that? Well, just grinding okay. Okay. So, through so that So we whole got the thing. theology. We got yeah. the principles. We got the knowledge. But that takes a, okay. years?
2: Yes. And I'm still learning what that looks like. Here again, the experiences. I mean, it was, but now,
1: but now you've got sort of a placeholder.
2: In other words, I knew I had already seen God take me through this, bring me out the other side. I'd already seen that I could go to hell and he'd be there and he'd walk me out. I'd already seen that I'm not in control. I knew those things.
1: There was no point in there when you said, okay, Lord, this is too much.
2: No. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know— and I would but use you, choice you languages. I'd go, right, what? Right. Uh, no, yeah, no, 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 no. This? Do. this? <laughs> really? Is there, any, is there an ever <laughs> yeah. too much? I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't doing that. But even there, he would show up, and he would say, all right, here we go. A couple of these stories. Okay. I'm in my garden. That's where I would just get a lot of time and it was therapy and everything. And I'm saying to God, I'm in this prayer. Look, God, I don't for one second doubt that you're not going to be present, do all the good stuff and help me like you did. The first, It's not like, oh, no, is it going to happen or Mm -hmm. will you be there? I know you will. The problem is I don't want to have to experience that again. I don't want to have to wake up and feel like I'm in hell. I don't want to have to wake up and have you get me out of bed. I know you will. I just don't want to do it. And then I'm listening. God says, that's fair, Gil. I get it. That's fair. That's not something I'm testing you on. I get you you don't want to do this. But a couple of things. One, let me make something clear. I'm not doing this to you. You referenced it early. This is the crap or whatever word.
1: Again, we're falling people in a fallen context. Sin has consequences that are until eternity. This is our life. This was the stuff I was trying to
2: wave Adam and Eve off in the garden. You can't be like God. Don't go go there because it unleashes (laughs) stuff. It's not your fault. Therefore, whatever, this just falls. This is the world. I'm not doing this to Lori. This is just the mess that falls on innocent people at times. One. Two. I know a mother over in Ethiopia right now is going to have to bury her child right now. I know a young girl. No,
1: in- let me interrupt you there because I often counsel people that are with you know chronic pain or cancer or whatever because they ask me how I manage right, it, right. so to speak. And I'll say comparing it to someone who has a worse situation doesn't help anything.
2: No, no and I'm not <laughs>
1: you know it's like they're in a wheelchair and they've had four back surgeries. I've had five, and I can still walk. So that doesn't make me feel any better, Gil. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And let me clarify. Thank you for that clarification. I often tell people, well, I shouldn't be talking to you as my stuff is nothing. I said, look.
1: Your pain's your pain.
2: You can't let my pain diminish your pain. Whether pain you. All pain's real. Thank That's you. not what I'm saying. What God was saying to me is, look, Gil, there are women bearing their children today. There's a girl in Thailand that's going to have to sell herself into prostitution to make sure the rest of her family could live. They don't want to do what they're going to have to do, but that's just what is. And I'm going to be with them just like I'm with you. This is what is. And to wish it wasn't is wasting your time. You don't have energy to wish you didn't have to do it. So let's let that go and know that I'm going to be with you just like I'm going to be with all those other people.
1: All right, let's move forward. Okay. I know you have other stories you want to tell me, but I want to go forward. Yeah. This becomes obvious it's terminal from the time of an accurate diagnosis to when she finally dies.
2: Eight years.
1: If we could be so indelicate to say, is that a slope? Is that up and down? It, is it was it- a
2: pretty good slope. Once we had to put her in a facility, I'd go to visit her facility. I could sit with some people in her facility and they would have a conversation like we're having, but they would think I was the president of the United States. They kept their language, they kept their words. Lori quickly lost her ability to speak, but she could then recognize me. So I think she recognized me all the way to the point of her death, but she couldn't say anything. So
1: Did she lighten up her disposition when oh, you showed absolutely. up? She smiled when you absolutely. came. She knew you okay. Absolutely, which Absolutely. Is, which is a blessing for many yes, people yes, absolutely. who have a spouse that's got you know, dementia or Alzheimer's. Her children, are they interacting with her? Are they coming around some? Yes, yes. And it's got to be hard for them to oh, horrible. That's I their mean, story yeah, as well. Yeah. So let's just fast forward. She's getting close to the end.
2: Yeah, but a couple of things like in between that go to this progression where God's taking me. One night, it's the tough day, finally get her to sleep, and I'm done, Mike. I just can't tell you, you know how tough it is to deal with someone who's losing their cognitive ability. And adult. Mm. I'm exhausted. So she's sleeping. I'm curled up fetally next to her. Sure. And I'm saying, I feel like I'm drowning. So here's the metaphor drowning. It's all in the scripture. I'm drowning. And for me, drowning meant I'm going to have a nervous breakdown or just a physical breakdown. And I'm saying, God, I feel like I'm drowning. And immediately the story of the boat and Jesus come walking on the water. And uh, my joke is I didn't have the courage to get out of the boat like Peter. But when I got up to let him out, he knocked me over. And I'm out there and that was those waves and I'm drowning, man. I remember Peter, you know, walk, but then he noticed the wind, which are the waves and he lost sight of Jesus and he starts thinking. He cries out, save me. I'm drowning. I'm already down. I didn't make it any time. Mm-hmm. I'm down. And I'm saying, God, if you don't, Save me, I'm going to have a breakdown. And I'm okay with that because I know you'll take care of everything. If I need to have a breakdown, I'll have one. That's great. I I trust. I've surrendered there. But if you want me to stay and get up and help her tomorrow, if that's your vision, you got to touch me like you touched Peter. I don't need to know you did. I don't need to know you can I believe trust those. But you, and, Mike, as I'm saying this, I didn't even know what I was saying. I just knew I was going down. Yeah, desperate. Did I think God's going to stick a hand through the ceiling? Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Right. Kid you not, I say that right there, my cell phone starts buzzing. Pick it up. It's two friends. Gil, don't know what's going on. God woke us up 30 minutes ago to pray for you. Seemed like it was desperate. It's on our heart that you desperately needed help. We're here praying. We want you to know there are a lot of people out there with you praying. You're not alone. God's woke us up to make sure you know that he's there with you and you're praying. Pats taps me on the shoulder and goes, Hey, you know that's my body, right? That's the body of Christ. And tonight, that's my hand. Hmm. I'm touching you, and you're not going to drown, Mike. I went to sleep. Next morning, I got the energy. Like, like, and it was never. I mean, just enough to the energy to do what was the next thing that Mm -hmm. God had in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that's there for us if we have eyes to see and a willingness to stay with it and to Mm -hmm. just trust and just. Again, I don't know a formula. I'm not advocating a formula. I'm well, and, and this and, is God.
1: And I know you well enough, but I want our friends to know you're crushed, too. I oh. mean, this, this is not platitudes if oh. I got it together and God's rescuing me here and there. It's crushing. To bury one spouse, most people's worst lot in life, a child would be, of course, more horrific. But to bury two wives?
2: And autistic sons and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, Mike, what you're, I think you're getting at, people will go to me often, Gil, do you even like God anymore? And I can honestly say, yeah, I do. And I really, truly have a deep, abiding love. And they go, well, I guess that means it doesn't hurt so much. And I go, why do you think that? Do you think that Christ's love for the Father took one second away from the pain of the nails in his hands, the beating he took, the rejection, the abandonment? You think it took away the pain? Why do we think that trusting God and having him show up and help means that we get a pass on suffering?
1: So help us as we open this discussion with this passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. You've had your share and then some of the fellowship of his sufferings?
2: Yes, yes. We are sharing the sufferings of Christ.
1: But How? How do we share? Someone like me could point to you and say, well, goodness, he lost two wives. He's got a, a son with some major challenges. That's a whole lot more suffering for Christ's sake than me with back surgery. And That's relativism.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. And well said, because another way to say what you're saying is people come to me and say, Gil, are you telling me I have to lose a wife? I have to have a special need before I can know Christ and everything? And the answer is no. That's my story. But there's something in your life that you are trusting that has to die, and it will be painful, whether it's your trust in your career. Everybody? Everybody.
1: So I could talk as a theologue for a moment and say, are you just a jaded cynic because you've been hurt so deeply, or do you truly believe all of us are going to have to suffer?
2: Yes, I truly believe everybody has to suffer.
1: How do I know then that my suffering is the fellowship? Of the sufferings of Jesus Christ?
2: I would say don't try to overthink it, but even if it's the suffering of the prodigal son, it's suffering that's necessary to die to our egoic self that thinks it can run the world apart from God. That has to die. And we've done a good job in the faith community of putting Jesus's face on our you know, career or our desires or our view of what a family should look like. And we've put God's face on it, and we're trusting it more than we're trusting God. And what we want God to do is to protect our it.
1: So, okay, I'm with you, but how do I not sound spiritually pretentious in saying, you know, my suffering is the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ? Because, so again, my aforementioned friend, I love her to death, and I love her to Johnny Erickson Tata, I don't know anybody that suffered more than she has physically and personally. And I look at her and I go, that's the fellowship of suffering. She knows Jesus in a way I don't. My suffering is just a hangnail.
2: Well, okay, but it is your suffering. And will you surrender into it? Which I will say, Michael, you've done that. That is where you're... You surrender to it. You don't don't have
1: a choice. The choice is to become bitter and self-absorbed and addicted to, you know, whatever, as opposed to, you know, okay, this is, and again, there's no hierarchy on pain and suffering is what I'm getting at. But at the same time, when I wake up in the morning and I feel horrible, like I'm hit by a gravel truck and I don't want to get out of bed. I feel like, well, that's a hangnail compared to what Gil's been through. That's a hangnail compared to what Johnny lives with. But
2: see, that's, I'm going to argue that comparison is one of the worst sins that we can do. It's like—
1: Your suffering is real.
2: Exactly. Everybody's suffering is real. Whatever. I'm sorry to say that everyone's going to have to go through that suffering to die to so, something.
1: So that said, if my hangnail is petty, is there ever a place to say, buck up, Gil?
2: carefully very carefully
1: i'm talking self talk not me coming in here oh no no
2: i would yeah, yeah, i yeah. would say no no self talk i'd say we need to be excessively gentle and we need to say enter into this sit with it it's not you're not being punished but it's not Gil, a legit, get
1: yourself out of bed come on it's one more day you get going i mean every we, single morning i when, tell myself
2: when we die you, there you got to
1: get up michael you got to take a shower that hot shower is going to help you i know you don't get out of bed arthritis and your bladder it's time to get up
2: and i'm saying what I, I you know again and i'm learning so i don't have the answer but i'm well, le- yeah yeah.
1: Wait, or, wait, wait, you gotta have the answer
2: all <laughs> right i can't be on this pod if i don't have the answer What I'm saying, I don't have the answer, but what I am saying is that self-talk that's saying, Michael, get stronger, do more, has to die. Well,
1: no, I understand that part of it, but isn't there, I mean, God's not deterministic. We're given, you know, you're my disciple if you love me. You love me if you keep my commands. So I know there's these guardrails that I have to, you know, and I don't mean that to get God's approval. I mean that just to live as a
2: disciple. Bear your cross. Yeah, but the cross is that surrendered place to then come into his power. So I want to know Christ. Everybody wants to know him, but we think that means more Bible studies or whatever. But to get to know him in the way we're talking about that relational experiential knowledge, you've got to enter into this process that God made in creation, life to death to resurrection. When they said, Jesus, you got to show us a miracle, he said, here's the miracle I'll do. It's the sign of Jonah. Jonah went into the belly of a great fish, so the son of Adam, and by extension, every son and daughter of Adam must go into the ground for three days and come out. Now, we've done our thinking that that's the end resurrection, but what I'm arguing Christ is saying, and all you know, the great teachers are saying, no, you got to die before you die. you got to constantly be dying to the sense that you can be like God, that you are in control, that you have enough... Everything we get, our life and breath and very being are gifts from God. This love that we belong is a gift from God. And when we can go through experiences that realize, oh my gosh, I can't do anything, we then receive that grace. We realize it's all along there. But then God wants to use our agency to make that happen. So, But we're surrendering. It's not us doing it. It's allowing the grace to live out of us. Some of the people that talk about this said it's a mystery, and again, that's not that it's unknowable, it's just infinitely noble, and you can go deeper and deeper into this.
1: I always go back to the man in Mark 9, who's he brings his son who's demon-possessed, and the disciples who are left behind can do nothing. The transfiguration is occurring, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they come down, and there's a crowd, they're upset, somewhat of a riot, we might say. And they bring the boy to Jesus, and he says, your disciples couldn't do anything, but if you can, and Jesus' response always dismantles me, if you can, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man's response to me is the most patently honest response in the New Testament. Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief, King James. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And Christ doesn't say, oh, that's sufficient. Now I'll heal your son. He just heals his son. And then he castigates his disciples and those around, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? And I think that miracle is so, it's overlooked because what Christ is doing in that moment is showing it's not the amount of faith. It's not contingent on how good of a person you are. Faith was, I want to believe, I'd like to believe, I wish you could, I just don't know. And it's not the amount of faith that somehow made Jesus perform. You and I have, you know, talked about prosperity theologians in the past, some who were in Dallas when we were in school, who it was, you know, mustard seed faith was the amount of faith. If you have enough faith. No, that's not what the text says. It's the person in whom we're trusting. The problem for us, Gil, is we say those things in platitudes, but experientially we're really bad.
2: So... My first wife is in the hospital, she's surrounded by a thousand people. None of them there thought, Well, actually, Mike, I would pay attention. The assumption was if you get a thousand people all agreeing on what God has to, God has happen. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. I'd say, so wait, you know, then the people that go, Well, there must have been not enough faith or some sin, I said, So if there's a thousand people there and nine hundred and ninety nine of them All have the right faith. Is it the one? I said, so none of this is making sense if you try to logic it out or if it's a formula. It just doesn't. You know, my son did a talk one time. He said, because he was around people that thought if you just believed and didn't have sin, you'd get healed and anything would happen. He said, talk to anybody about my mother, greatest person ever in the world. It wasn't about her. And if you want to talk to anybody else about how much faith she had. So I'm happy for all you guys when this happens, but I'm just telling you one story where here's a woman who was as good as you get and everybody in a thousand people had enough faith to pray the one thing and she died. I'm just telling you my story. So there is not a formula and we're never asking God, what are you up to? We're telling them what we want and we don't know enough to know what's good and evil. You know, we need to trust that God who is good, you know, I read this and I'll read it again. This is out of George McDonald's Diary of Old Soul. I have not knowledge, wisdom, insight, thought, nor understanding fit to justify you in your work, O perfect one. You have brought me up to this, and lo, what you are doing, I cannot call it good, but I can cry, O enemy, the maker is not done. One day you will behold and from this sight will flee We don't have the knowledge to say this, why, whatever, the causalities. I'm done with causalities. My wife said, for me, there is no why. There's only a who, and that who is good and compassionate and loving and kind. Can we trust that who? Now, we ask what we want. We tell what we think. We say what we feel. But at the end of that, because we know God is good and we're beloved, we can say not my will, but your will be done. And we surrender into that.
1: Gil Wesley, longtime friend, longtime brother. You've soldiered on through the loss of two wives. You've soldiered on through challenges of parenting, as a lot of us have. Thanks for your heart for the Lord, for your time, for your ministry, and thanks for being on the broadcast.
2: I am honored beyond my way to express it, and I will finally say again. Listen to what I'm saying. If the Lord prompts your heart with it, take it. If not, just dismiss it. I'm just telling (laughs) you what I've I've seen.
1: And there you have it.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.